0: Welcome, it's great to have you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Before we start in there, let me just uh, make a couple of remarks. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, are aware of what's taken place this week, and specifically on Wednesday uh, of this week. And I fear at times that there are two false gospels that have infiltrated the church. There is a prosperity gospel and there is a political gospel. Both of those gospels have a false God, they have a false Savior, and they serve fallen kingdoms. So let me just remind you uh, as believers and as a body of Christ uh, that we have a biblical gospel. We have a God that saves. We have a Savior who died and rose again. And our kingdom is not of this world. It is an exalted kingdom. And so I want to encourage you to pursue that kingdom. Let's pray together. God, you are well aware of what all has taken place in our world and specifically in our country this week. And we just want to acknowledge you and your Son as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we live as strangers in this land. We're sojourners, and Father, I pray that we would keep in mind our citizenship, which is in heaven, and that we would fix our eyes on what is above and not on what is below, and that we would move through this world with the singular goal of glorifying you and of making disciples of all nations. And so help us to accomplish that. Uh, help us to rest in your sovereignty over all things, including the things that have happened this week. And I pray that you would calm our hearts, that you would calm our spirits, and you would fix our eyes on you. Help us to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you have your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you were here last week, you heard me say that this book is written to Christians who are suffering and it's written to give hope uh, to Christians who are suffering. Last week, we looked specifically at the author of this book, a guy named Peter or Simon, Cephas in other parts of the New Testament. And we attempted to learn a little bit about him so that we could understand his perspective and, and his background and his life and really some of the suffering that he personally endured Uh, which brought him to write this letter. And so this morning, my goal is to finish out the greeting that he wrote here and discover, even in these first couple verses, uh, the richness that's contained in the promises that Peter is reminding us of as he writes his opening words to scattered believers. And so follow along as I read the greeting to this letter. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. be multiplied to you fantastic fantastic verses as a pastor i have had numerous opportunities to sit with people who are facing and experiencing suffering sometimes that's sitting with people in an er room sometimes that's sitting with people in a counseling room sometimes that's sitting with people at a funeral uh, people who are enduring hardship. People who are uh, going through the trials of life. And, and we know that these things are going to happen because we live in a world uh, that is marred by sin. Uh, and sin has devastating effects. Uh, suffering should not surprise us. It, it was promised by our Lord. It was experienced uh, by our Lord. Uh, it was experienced by all the New Testament writers as they wrote the scriptures. It's not a matter of if suffering will come, but it's a matter of how we will respond to it and what we will do with it when it occur, uh, occurs. And there, there are a couple, if you, if you sit with people who are suffering, there are a couple common remarks or questions that you hear come up over and over again. Probably the, the first one that you often hear is, why is this happening? Why am I going through this? Why am I suffering? It's it's a question of purpose. What's what's the purpose? And as humans, we want to know why. We want to know why am I going through this? That's the first thing that we often hear. The second remark that you often hear when people are walking through suffering is something like this. Well, you sure find out who your friends are when you go through something like this. Have you heard something like that? You sure find out who your friends are when you're going through something like this because superficial friends fall away in times of suffering, but true friends remain. They stand close, they're eager to help, they give a listening ear, and they see us through times like that. So given those two remarks, why did this happen and who are my true friends I think it's appropriate that Peter starts off his letter the way he does because he answers both of those questions in these first two verses. He gives us both the purpose of our suffering and he tells us who our friends are as we're facing that suffering. Okay? Wonderful, again, verses. Now, I'm just going to tell you up front so no one's shocked and surprised and scared. Uh, we're going to cross some words and topics and doctrines in these verses that make some people very uneasy. Because when you mention words like elect and foreknowledge or related words that are in some of your translations like chosen or predestined, some people run for the hills, right? Don't talk about those things. Avoid those things at all costs. And it has been my experience uh, in the church that we don't like to talk about these things, uh, at least not from the pulpit. We'll debate them often in Sunday school or in small group, but rarely, if ever, uh, do you hear a clear articulation of some of these doctrines uh, from from the pulpit. And so I hope to bring some clarity uh, and meaning and purpose to some of those things. But here's what I want you to know uh, above all else. This is important for you to know uh, when we come to some of these kinds of things. Never, and I repeat, never do the writers of scripture ever write these things in order to drum up in you angst and bitterness and revolt. Every single time these things are written, and you can go test me on this, every single time these things are written in the New Testament, they are written to bring you hope and comfort and security. That's their goal, to bring you hope, comfort, and security. In fact, the New Testament writers... Uh, so assume some of these truths, they rarely even give long and detailed explanation of them. They just kind of state them as a fact and and they move along. So my hope is this, whether whether you uh, agree or disagree with me uh, on some of uh, what we'll cover this morning, I hope you at least accept uh, what Peter is trying to do. He's trying to provide you, Christian, with a solid foundation, So that when you face suffering, you do so with hope and purpose. Hope and purpose. So let's consider what God might be trying to teach us through his word, his word that's preserved for your good uh, and for his glory. Okay, so let's look again uh, at verse 1. Notice first who Peter is writing to when he writes this letter. Look at verse 1. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and then he goes on to name five different regions. Depending on what translation of the Bible you have in your lap, uh, that word exiles, which is in my Bible, might be translated in your Bible as strangers, or it might say sojourners, or it might even have the word aliens there. Um, And the word dispersion, which is in the English standard version that I have, may be translated in in your Bible as scattered or dispersed. Okay. So we have this idea of exiles, strangers, sojourners who are scattered and dispersed. Okay. So who are these people? Who is he writing to? Well, he's writing to believers who have been scattered from their homeland. These are people who have been scattered out of Jerusalem and out of Israel. If you recall back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, when Jesus is getting ready to ascend, he says this. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Okay, he he promised that in Acts chapter 1. Well, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descends and they receive power, all of those believers were in Jerusalem. So how did God ensure that they would leave Jerusalem and they would go and carry out his calling to Judea and to Samaria and to the end of the earth? Well, he allowed persecution to come. He allowed suffering. It doesn't take very long. When you read through the book of Acts and you get to Acts chapter 7, you read about the first Christian martyr, a guy named Stephen. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read this. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Catch this. And they were all scattered. Where? Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So there you go. Through the means of suffering, God scattered his church so that his purpose in being witnesses, them being witnesses to the region and ultimately to the world would happen. So here comes Peter now. This is about 30 years later, and he's writing to those scattered Christians around the region. Some of the names of the regions that are listed here in verse 1 of 1 Peter 1, some of the regions listed here are also listed in Acts chapter 2. People had come into Jerusalem from all these different regions. And so he, Peter may very well here be writing to some people who were there on the day when the Holy Spirit descended and they heard the, the roar, that roaring sound of the Holy Spirit. Now, in 30 years, no doubt, they've accumulated other people who now believe in Jesus Christ, uh, but they're scattered. And they're scattered around all these Roman provinces and regions, which now, if you look at a map, they comprise modern-day Turkey. Peter is writing to Jewish Christians, and he's writing to Gentile Christians with his letter. And Based on the order that he lists these regions in verse 1, if you would look at a map of biblical times, it looks like he intended for his letter to circulate in somewhat of a circle pattern around the region. He he lists them in that order. So they would have read the letter, passed it off to the next church and the next church and, and, and so on and so forth. So Paul is writing to the exiles, the strangers, the sojourners, who have been scattered and dispersed. Now, there there is a physical sense in which these folks are strangers, right? They're, They're not living in the homeland of Israel anymore. Physically, they've been scattered. But there is a greater and there is a spiritual sense in which Peter is also addressing these believers. Remember back in John 17, verse 16, Jesus said this, Talking about his followers, he says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Paul also addressed believers in Philippians 3.20, and he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. These believers that Peter is writing to here, they are sojourners in the truest sense of the word, just like you and I are today. We live in this world, but we are not of this world. Our citizenship is in a heavenly kingdom. We're just passing through this world. That's why if you go and you read Christian obituaries, a lot of times it'll read something like this. So-and-so went home, that's the choice of words, so-and-so went home to be with the Lord right? There's a sense in which we're not at home here. Our home is somewhere else. It's a recognition that our highest allegiance is to a king who doesn't live on this earth. Our highest allegiance is to the king of kings who resides in heaven. Our citizenship is there. And so we set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Colossians 3 chapter 2. This doesn't mean that This does not mean that we are ignorant of the things that happen on this earth. It doesn't mean we walk around on the earth uh, just all aloof and, and detached from the realities of what's going on here. No, it's not that at all. But we understand that there is a purpose for us being here. We'll get to that in just a moment. There's a purpose for us being here. But we're just strangers here. We're exiles. We're passing through on our way to a permanent home with our Lord. And so remember this, if you are suffering today, this is temporary. This is temporary. In fact, Paul, him, Paul refers to his suffering in Second Corinthians chapter 4, and he calls his suffering light and momentary. And he says, this light and momentary affliction that we face now is nothing in compared with the eternal weight of glory that's being prepared and preserved for us in heaven. So if you are here this morning and you are suffering, lift up your eyes and fix them on Jesus. We sing an old hymn. We didn't sing it this morning, but we sing an old hymn that goes like this, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Do you know how it goes? And the things of earth will grow what? Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Peter wanted his readers to know then and now that we are exiles, sojourners in this world. I don't know what you're facing this morning. And some of you may have walked into this room this morning facing tremendous suffering. Remember, this is not your home and your suffering is temporary. It will end someday. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, how can I be assured that heaven awaits for me? How do I know that this is temporary? How do I know Uh, that God has a purpose in this for me. Well, it has to do with the, the sovereign counsel of God and his determined purpose in the lives of his children. Watch this. I think this is important. Notice that Peter describes these scattered believers as elect. These are elect exiles. Again, if you have an NIV uh, with you, uh, the NIV translators expand on that thought in verse 2, and and they say in verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. If you have a King James version, the King James connects this idea of elect uh, as well in verse 2. The King James reads like this. uh, These are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What does that mean? How how should we understand that? Well, that that word elect there is a Greek word, eklektos, and it means to be chosen. That's why the NIV translator is translated as chosen. It means to be chosen. It means to be selected. It means to be picked out. In other words, these are the the chosen of God. Jesus alludes to this idea back in Matthew chapter 22. uh, He said, for many are called but few are chosen. He uses that word there. In John 15 and verse 16, Jesus also speaking says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus wasn't afraid to talk about these things. Paul wasn't afraid to talk about these things. And now Peter comes along and he's not afraid to talk about these things. And the question that always comes up is, well, well, how were they chosen? How, how, did, how, how did this election occur? How were, they, how were they picked out? Well, Peter tells us in verse 2. He says, they were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God elected his children according to his foreknowledge. Well, what is his foreknowledge? What does that mean? Well, it means far more than passive foresight or simply being able to to see into the future. It does not mean uh, looking down the corridor of time and based on a decision that's made out there, God chooses uh, someone to do such and such. In, in fact, we know it can't mean that because look look in your Bibles at 1 Peter 1 and verse 20. Peter uses the same word to talk about Jesus. First Peter 1 verse 20. It says, he, Jesus... Was foreknown, same word. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. God didn't look down the the corridors of time and and see that Jesus would be obedient to Him, and then think, "Oh, great, well then that's my guy. That's that's who I want. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna pick him. I'm gonna choose him." No, the word foreknowledge, when you cross that in Scripture, it means. To set one's affection on and to know someone beforehand. It means to know them before and to set their affection or their regard or their attention on. God foreknew Jesus. He, he knew him before the foundation of the world. He, he set his affection on him. He, he loved his son. This, God to Jesus, this was his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. God's love for Jesus was eternal, and it was known before the creation of the world, and and God loved Jesus in a, a personal and a ceaseless kind of way. It's that same word that Peter applies to the believers in his letter that have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. He says to them, you are elect, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Well, when did that happen? When was I chosen by the foreknowledge of God? Well, if you were here when we studied the book of Ephesians, you'll recall Ephesians 1 verse 4, and Paul says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Peter so desperately wanted to remind his readers here that God had set his affection on them long before he ever even created the world, before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, God chose to center his attention on, to set his affection on, his love, his concern, his compassion on you. Why is Peter so earnestly wanting us to remember that? Because that implies that our status as strangers in this world, including all of the suffering that we're going to encounter in this world were all known by God before the world began and it all came about in accordance with his foreknowledge and thus we may conclude all in accordance with his fatherly love for you. you listen to Moody Radio, uh, you've heard a guy on there named Steve Brown. Steve Brown says this. He says, if you want to make your problems worse, see every problem as an accident. If you want to make your problems better, learn to see God's hand in them. God loved you. God knew you And God knew all of your problems before the foundation of the earth. Paul's inclusion of just that one simple word in that opening greeting is laden with comfort. The difficulties that we face as children of God do not surprise God. God the Father knows his children. And he knows everything his chosen people will face. And his promise is that he will never leave us or forsake us. If you want to know if you have any friends in your suffering, know this. You have no dearer friend than Jesus a friend who is called the suffering servant. He knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to go through hardship. He promises to walk alongside you, and God foreknew him, and God foreknows you. You have a friend in Jesus. And your suffering has a purpose. Your suffering has a purpose. How can we be sure? Well, turn in your Bibles with me to Romans 8 and verse 28. Romans 8 and verse 28. I suspect when you get there, you'll have this verse underlined in your Bible, and you probably have it memorized. Uh, most good Christians do. You might have this hanging on a plaque somewhere in your living room. Uh, Romans eight twenty-eight reads this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now notice, it does not say that all things are good. Cancer isn't good. Bankruptcy isn't good. Persecution isn't good. What does the verse say? The verse says, all things work together for good. Well, what's the good then? What is the good for which all things are working together? Well, the good comes in the very next verse. Never divorce verse 29 from verse 28 because it's in verse 29 that we find the good. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, there's that foreknowledge again, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined or predetermined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The good that God has in mind when we face suffering is that we would be conformed into the image of Jesus. In other words, when you and I face suffering, it is an opportunity to become like Jesus in the midst of that suffering. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. Well, how does, does Roman eight Romans 8, how does that tie in with what Peter is telling us in 1 Peter chapter 1, go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and, and look again at verse 2. Do the, do the two tie together? Do the two make sense together? Well, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says this. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, we've just talked about that, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for what? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Stop right there for just a moment. According to the foreknowledge of God, he has chosen us, he has set his affection on us, he has his uh, uh, loving concern for us, and he is loving us through every event that happens in our our lives. But those events have a purpose, according to verse 2. Why do we suffer? What is the purpose for which we suffer? We want to know the why question. Here it is in verse 2, just like it was in Romans 8, 29. The purpose is twofold. He says the purpose is this. It's to be sanctified of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. To be sanctified by the Spirit For obedience to Jesus Christ. Now that word sanctification, that's a a big Christian word that we use uh, that we need to define. To be sanctified means to be set apart. It it means to be uh, uh, consecrated for holiness according to the Bible. In one sense, we are sanctified when we first become believers. We're, We're moved from the sphere of darkness into the sphere of light. We're set apart for Christ. Sanctification, we call that initial sanctification, when we first become believers. In another sense, the word sanctification, in the way Peter's using it here, it is a lifelong process. We're continually being sanctified. When we face suffering, whether that suffering is small or whether that suffering is enormous, that suffering allows us To glimpse in our heart. And when we suffer, we can look in our heart and we can say, how am I responding to this suffering? Am I responding with grace and with patience and with hope? Or am I responding with worry and complaint and grumbling? God is going to use that suffering to sanctify us, to root out those bad responses and, and build within us responses of Christ. Christ never grumbled when he was on the way to the cross. He asked for relief in the Garden of Gethsemane, but ultimately he surrendered his will to the Father. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. When you and I face suffering, we're given the opportunity to surrender our will to God. God, I don't know why I'm facing this suffering. I don't know why you've chosen for me to walk through this suffering right now. And if it's your will, I pray, please remove the suffering from me. Nevertheless, if it's your will for me to walk through this, then help me to love like Jesus, to serve like Jesus, and to lay down my life like Jesus. Your will be done. Do you see? Peter here is trying to show us that suffering is the opportunity to display obedience to Jesus Christ. So don't despise your suffering. Don't despise what God has asked you to walk through. View it as an opportunity to put on Christ, to display Christ, to grow deeper into Christ who walked the path ahead of you. Let me just answer the question straight on. Why do we face suffering? The long and short of it is like this. Suffering helps make us more like Christ. One of my pastor friends, says it like this often, and I I quote him often. Uh, he, He describes suffering in this way. He says, God will take you through things you would never take yourself in order to make you into something you could never make yourself. Unless you think I'm just making up that as kind of a nice cliche. If you still have First Peter open, uh, glance down to verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why, Peter? Why? Look what he says. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in what? Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your suffering brings about the opportunity to praise and glorify and honor Jesus Christ and at his second coming, his final coming, the ultimate praise. So in summary... Two things Peter wants us to know in his greeting. First, your closest friend and companion knew you, loved you, and chose you before the foundation of the world. Long before you knew him, he knew you and he loved you. There's a playwright, a guy named Thornton Wilder. He wrote a play once. Uh, It was called Our Town. And in the play, there's there's a minister who writes a letter to a lady named Jane Crowfoot. And here's how the minister writes her address on the front of the envelope. He writes this, Jane Crawford, the Crawford Farm, Grover's Corner, Sutton County, New Hampshire, United States of America, continent of North America, Western Hemisphere, the earth, the solar system, the universe, the mind of God. Suffering, friend, there has never been been a moment in eternity when you were not on the mind of God. And second, Peter wants us to know there is a purpose in your suffering. And the purpose is to conform you, to bring about your obedience to Jesus Christ. And here's the really neat thing. Jesus has walked this road ahead of you. He's gone before you. You've you've been sprinkled with his blood, Peter says. And the writer of Hebrew promises you this. Chapter four, verse 15 We do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Suffer well with christ because he has gone ahead of you and he will walk alongside of you so peter opens up his letter with these wonderful promises and he says may grace and peace be multiplied to you and now he's going to unpack it as he finishes writing out his letter come back and let's learn more Will you stand with me? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the reminder that Peter gives here when he says that you knew us. We've been on your mind. You loved us. You chose us. You walk alongside of us. You sent your son to die and to rise again for us. And because of his victory, we've been sprinkled with his blood. and Now we can walk in obedience as we pattern our lives after Jesus Christ. Thank you for these wonderful, wonderful words of comfort. Words that remind us that our dearest friend, is Jesus, who is also foreknown by you before the foundation of the world. He's our dearest companion. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus so that the things of this world grow dim in comparison. And help us when we face suffering to know that it's it's temporary. It, it, it feels long to us, but in the scope of eternity, it's temporary. And help us to live in the midst of our suffering In obedience to Jesus Christ, use our suffering not to pound us down and discourage us, but use our suffering to give us hope that we can be changed to look like Jesus. Help us to suffer well for your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.